Luke chapter 1, verse 5 and following. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God in the division and his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For four months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who, whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has now conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the bondservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And God had his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. What a, what a powerful, powerful contrast in stories. We have Zechariah contrasted with Mary, an old Priest, man, old man priest who's doing his duty in the temple in the pinnacle city in Jerusalem in the place of honor and a unknown, unaccomplished, no, nothing special about ordinary woman who's young in the middle of nowhere in a small town of mixed cultures that's obscure that no one seems to like. So she comes from a small town in Texas. Right. This is this is amazing, this story. These are one of the things that jumps out at me in our first just passing through this passage is, is that these are ordinary people. Zachariah and Elizabeth are just Elderly saints who are doing their duty. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're, they're going about their daily lives. They're handling their business. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Mary is just a teenager. At most, she's, in, at most she's about 16. More than likely, she's between the ages of 12 and 15. Um, she is young. There were some Roman laws that give us understanding as to how old she must have been, by the way. Roman laws that the Jews followed. One was that you couldn't be betrothed until you were 10, and you couldn't actually be married until you were 12. Those were two Roman laws. Um, and so most often the Jews in the first century followed those laws, pretty, pretty standard, that if you were a 12-year-old girl, you were going to be married to probably what amounted to an 18- to 20-year-old man. Which, you know, in maturity's sake, it's probably about even. <laughs> Most 18 to 20 year old men are about 12, you know? <laughs> I'd say. So let's recap here what we see. Zechariah and Elizabeth, the, uh, their names meaning Yahweh remembers Zechariah, the promise of God, Elizabeth, have a son named Grace. So, Yahweh remembers the promise of God, grace, or Jehovah remembers the promise of God, grace, right? So we have this 
story of them that we studied last week. Zechariah doubts the Lord, and it's said that he doubts the Lord. We're not, uh, we're not assuming anything there. Gabriel says, because you doubted, you're going to be silent. So he doubts the Lord, and he's silent. He's not allowed to talk. And this mirrors the people of Israel. His silence mirrors the people of Israel in that he is silent, uh, and just as God was silent before Israel for 400 years. Just as God did not say anything for 400 years until now, until Luke chapter 1 here. God shows up after 400 years of silence and the people doing their duty and praying to the Lord in a very nice looking temple with a uh, puppet king of a Roman state who set up idolatry and paganism everywhere. Uh, So they are in desperate need of the king to come and restore the kingdom. So 400 years of silence and Zechariah mirrors that. God meets him in a religious service. So he takes the altar of incense, he takes the incense to the altar, and God shows up, the angel Gabriel shows up to the right with the word of the Lord before him, and it is terrifying to Zechariah. He falls, or he, 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 he fears and falls back, and you can, you can kind of imagine what that would be like. And we talked about last week how, how, how must Gabriel have been so excited for the word of the Lord to come to this guy, and he got all ready, you know, you can imagine, him like, getting ready, where am I going to stand? Here's the altar. I'm standing right here. Put my hand. Okay. All right. And Zechariah walks in and goes, hey. And Zechariah loses it. And he's like, ah, don't be afraid. It happens every time. Every time I show up. Everybody's afraid. So Gabriel, you can imagine this zeal, and then Zechariah responds with doubt, and Gabriel responds with, I am Gabriel, the voice of God. Are you kidding me? You want proof? All right. You don't get to talk anymore. And that's his response. God meets an ordinary man in ordinary disciplined spiritual work in his ordinary efforts. Just so you're aware, for the next couple weeks, I imagine the Lord will have babies making noise in our congregation often because we are talking about babies being born. So just get used to it. He wants you to hear them. And for those of you who are online, we have a special mic that directional is directional. You may not be able to hear this, but it's great. You're missing out. Um, I love you. You are missing out. So six months in, we come to the story of Mary. In verse 26, the Gabriel, Gabriel, after six months, is now sent to Mary. He's sent, look at what it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now let's get a couple things straight about Galilee. Galilee is a mixed culture city. It is Jewish, Samaritan, it is Gentile, it is Roman, it is... There are hangover Greeks. There's just all kinds of people there. There's all kinds of people there. And it is a, uh, it is a hodgepodge of people, but it's not, it's a large area. So Galilee is this hodgepodge of people, and in Galilee is this little city called Nazareth, which is about the size of Brazoria. Maybe a little smaller even. So, Nazareth is about like where we live. And here's the thing. No one likes Nazareth. 
No, literally, no one likes Nazareth. It's one of those towns that you just kind of go, oh, we got to go through Nazareth? Okay, well, just hold your breath, and we'll go straight through. And, and don't stop at the stop sign, you know, like that kind of town. It's a small town that no one likes. And we know no one likes it because later on when Jesus meets Nathaniel, Nathaniel goes, he's from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And we have ancient writings in the first century that talk about how pitiful a town Nazareth was. And it wasn't pitiful as in wicked. Like It's not like you were going to get mugged there or anything. It's just kind of lame. Nobody wants to go there. There's no tourist industry in Nazareth. Are you, you, you following? Nobody's going there to see the sights. So Nazareth, this normal small town, inconsequential at best, it's inconsequential. At most it's ignored. It's more a town scorned and rejected by the, by the religious people. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Those are just a bunch of backwoods, you know, people who just, they work, everybody there works with their hands. Nobody's got an education. And yet, Jesus calls it home. Jesus calls it home. So he comes to this ordinary town where there's this ordinary girl who's roughly 13, 14, somewhere around there, comes to her, and comes to this virgin. Note how she is described here in verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. I want you to notice, Luke tacks her name on as an afterthought. He calls her a virgin. He insists she's a virgin. He uses that term twice. Comes to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So you go, okay, well there's something, right? She's at least marrying into a godly line, the King David line. We'll learn later on that she is of the same line, that she's of the line of David, kind of distant, uh, but the same lineage, the same genealogy that she's got. She's got David in her genealogy too. But here in this passage we see Luke say her she's at least marrying a guy named Joseph who's of the line of David. They go, oh, okay, so think about Joseph. He's the one who saved Israel from famine, right, in the Old Testament. Okay, so he's got a good name, Joseph, you know, this this name, Joseph, and, and he's he's got a good name and and she's married into this line of David. So there, there's something. She's a virgin. So she's not had any life experience yet beyond childhood. She's a virgin. She's not a mother. She's not, she's not accomplished. There's nothing really miraculous about her. And oh yeah, by the way, her name was Mary. That's kind of how this reads. You just kind of tax on at the end her name was Mary. Simple. Simple, ordinary. Simple and ordinary. Her name was Mary. She was a virgin. And he emphasizes virgin there because in Isaiah chapter 7, I think it's verse 14, it says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that's this prophecy. She is a virgin. And his name will be called Emmanuel. He will be God with us. So we see here God showing up and 
in an inconsequential town, in an area that no one really uh, esteemed highly, to a woman who was not necessarily anything incredible. She was ordinary. And there should be, in our hearts, such joy when we begin to take those facts into ourselves. You see, God seems to delight in showing up in ordinary people. He seems to delight in coming around people who just are normal. People who work, people who go about their normal day. I mean, you can imagine, right? My daughter was in the kitchen the other day. She's 10 or 11. She's 11. And she's, I don't know the ages of my kids. It's a shame. She's 11 and she's cooking in the kitchen. And I walked in behind her after studying this passage and I thought, I wonder if Mary was doing that. If she was just cooking. She was just over, you know, cooking, maybe cleaning the house. Maybe she's sweeping. I thought, she's doing a normal activity. There's nothing special. She's not in she's not in temple fasting and praying and, and having the aura come around her. She's not like all those Renaissance paintings where she's floating. You know, you know what I'm talking about? The weird ones where she's you know, and, and she's kind of floating off and the baby is there, but Jesus is almost painted in as an afterthought. Like that's not the case. She's normal. She might have been sweeping the floor, she might have been she might have been cleaning dishes. She was just there, going about her normal life. Nothing magnificent or special about Mary. She's a normal person. And yet, God delights in showing up to normal, ordinary people in their ordinary, everyday activities. How often God shows up when we are not expecting Him and just says, Hi. And begins to show us who he is. So Mary is ordinary. And God seems to delight in ordinary people doing life together. And Gabriel is sent to her, and the virgin's name was Mary. That would make a great t-shirt that would confuse the world and start great conversations. Wouldn't it? The virgin's name was Mary. People would be like, what? what are you talking Is that inappropriate or is that appropriate? What is, I don't understand. And you could have all kinds of conversations. So for those of you who are entrepreneurial, go get after that. She's betrothed to Joseph. Now remember, Joseph is of the house of David. And, and there's a certain prophecy that's being referenced here where David is told, you will have a son and he will sit on the throne forever. And a lot of Jewish scholars say, a lot of Hebrews who are trying to deny the idea that there's a Messiah, they will say that this is Israel as a whole. Israel sits on the throne forever. And I just have to tell you, no, that's wrong. It's not, that's not the case. It's not Israel. It's Jesus, the Messiah. Luke is pointing that out right here. He's of the throne of David. In fact, Gabriel is going to later on say that prophecy. Sit on the throne of, the, of David forever. So, just before we go any further, if you are at all inclined to be radically liberal in your thought and think that uh, Israel is what's being referenced in that prophecy, that's not the case. What's being referenced in that prophecy is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, who uh, we're reading about right here. So, 
Luke chapter 1, verse 28, he says, uh, And Gabriel came to her and said, and I'm going to read this the way it's written, so it's not going to look like your translation. Gabriel came to her and said, Hi, one who's been given grace, the Lord is with you. We, we read that differently, don't we, in our text. When we translate it, we translate Greetings, and it's this powerful da 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 da. This is a common greeting. What he what he says here is the equivalent of hi. So imagine you're 11 years old. You're a girl. Maybe you might be 12 or 13, and you're and then you hear this hi. Right? It's weird. You turn, you look. Greetings. Hi. You found favor with God. He's with you. Okay. This is this is an awkward situation. Can you imagine you're in a room, you're in a house, wherever you are, it doesn't tell us exactly where she is, but wherever she is, and she's by herself, and this angel shows up and, and his answer is not Hail Mary, full of grace, like we translated in the King James or the Old Testament, right? The, the, it's actually the Latin Vulgate that translates it that way. Hail Mary, full of grace. Uh, the Greek is hi. Uh, so, hi, you know, and so the, the, but we've, 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 we've made this miraculous thing, some ostentatious, beautiful, the, the heavens open and there's, oh, and the angel is standing there and there's this thing. But look at what happens in the story. He says, hi, favored one. God is with you. The Lord is with you. It's incredibly casual. There's no shining lights. And if you'll notice, Mary doesn't fall over. She's just confused. Which makes a little bit of sense, right? Because she doesn't know where this guy came from. And he doesn't necessarily look like a man, but he looks like a man. And should I run? Or is he friend or foe? Am I going to die? Like, that's the question, right? Like, is this, what's going on? Are you about to take me to heaven, Lord? I don't understand, right? And so he turns high, and she responds. It's so simple. It's so simple, and such an ordinary response to ordinary people. And I want you to hear this. God does not require of you pomp and circumstance. He doesn't require of you big praises and lofty, voluminous words. In fact, when he comes to you, he often just says hi. It's what we talked about a couple weeks ago when we said, man makes a refrigerator and says, this is amazing, incredible, awesome, powerful. He makes a car and says, this thing is fantastic, uh, incredible, amazing. God makes a tree and says it's good and makes a rabbit and says good. The rabbit continues to reproduce and the tree continues to grow. The refrigerator breaks down and the car doesn't run anymore. So, so God doesn't need pomp and circumstance when he greets you or when he talks with you. Isn't that great to know? Isn't it great to know you don't need a theological degree to understand scripture? You don't need a master's level understanding of Greek and Hebrew to understand what the text says. 
Don't get me wrong. If you want to study for that, it's great. I have one. It's awesome. But you don't have to have it. God speaks through ordinary means to ordinary people in simple terms. Indeed, when God calls a man, He calls him in His language. When God calls to a woman, He calls to her in her language, in her voice, in her style, and who she is. That's why Scripture, which is authored by tons, over a hundred authors, it's authored by a hundred authors, and they all maintain the same theme, same thread, same overarching message, same nuanced subject, and yet all in their own unique, stylized voice. Because God speaks through us. I was, I was having this moment with the Lord the other day where I was I was frustrated because I was trying to type out a chapter in a book that I'm working on, and I was trying to type it out, and I just, in frustration, prayed, Lord, would you just write the chapter for me? Would you just write it for me? And I felt this overwhelming sense come down. I could do that, John, but I want to hear you say it. Because I like hearing you. It was overwhelming to understand. God likes hearing a guy that can't string sentences together well enough on paper without his wife having to come back and fix it all. It was overwhelming to feel the sense of the Lord go, I like ordinary people, John. I like you with all your flaws and all your issues and all your inability to string uh, words together without trying to impress everybody with every single big word you know. So, God delights in ordinary people. And Mary is told, Mary, you are favored of God. Now, we have this, uh, we have to pause here just for a moment. If you have a Catholic background or if you are of a Catholic background, you are familiar with this phrase or you, even if you don't, you probably heard it. Hail Mary, full of grace. Um, the Lord is with you. And this, this is the idea, that's taken from the Latin Vulgate, and it's the translation of this text. It says, Hail Mary, full of grace. And the idea that the Catholics jumped on in the medieval uh, centuries, it didn't really happen until the medieval time, um, so knights and kings and people with big swords, that you can imagine how that looks, right? So it's the medieval theologians, the Catholic theologians said this phrase, Hail Mary, full of grace, meant that she had some intrinsic grace within herself that she was giving to God. Now, uh, that is a misinterpretation and a mistranslation of what this text says. This text does not say that the grace is coming from Mary or that she has some intrinsic grace within herself. Rather, this text is saying that Mary has been given grace by God in this moment. In this moment, she is receiving grace from God. High, O favored one, is how this needs to be translated, because she is receiving favor from the Most High God. She's not able to give you favor. Mary is not the intercessor. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Mary can't give you righteousness. She can't give you clemency from sin. She can't even appeal to Jesus. In fact, in Mark, we know that she can't appeal to Jesus on your behalf because Mary comes to Jesus in the book of Mark and says, 
Bring him out to me and his brothers, for he has lost his senses. And what's Jesus' response? Who are my mother and brothers but those who are here and believe? Mary couldn't intercede on behalf of you on earth. She can't intercede on behalf of you in heaven. Jesus is your intercessor. If you are Catholic and watching this online, I pray that you understand that he is your intercessor. Jesus is your intercessor, not Mary. Pray to Jesus Christ, the righteous, for your salvation. He says, come to me, all who thirst, all who are weary, come to me. Lay your burdens on me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lay it on me. Not lay it on Mary. It's on him, on Jesus. And that's who we lean on. That's who we go towards. We go to Jesus, not to Mary. That was a necessary stop in this story. That was a a little aside. It is not Hail Mary full of grace. It is high. High, oh favored one. High, favored one who's getting grace from God in this moment. High. This is... Not grace from Mary, but grace to Mary. High favored one. Then he says, the Lord is with you. Meaning the Lord is here. He's present. He's around. He's with you. And then it says, but she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Well, that's understandable, right? You meet an angel in a a dark room where you're doing normal chores. You might think that you're going to die. Uh-oh. Angel, big room. I don't know, am I... And so she turns and she sees the angel and she thinks, am I, is, am I in trouble or is this a good thing? What, what's going on? Am I in trouble or is this a good thing? What do I do? And so the angel responds, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now this is interesting. This found favor with is a, an interesting construction here that, that means that God has given her favor because she has been by his side. This is the word here for with is different than the word used above when it says God is with you. It now says with as in right next to you, by your side. You have been by his side. So he says you have found favor with God. You have found favor by the side of God. So when it says here, the angel says, do not be afraid, for you have found favor by the side of God. In other words, he he looks at her and goes, Mary, you're not going to die. That's his his statement. Mary, you're not going to die. You found favor with God. You found grace by the side of God. God has given you grace at his side. Do not be afraid. Now... One day, the announcement will come to man, and it will say, be afraid. One day, the announcement will come to man, and it will say, be afraid. You have time now to repent and believe and trust in the Lord. You have time now to repent and believe and trust in the Lord. And you don't have to be afraid of God, but one day, you will be afraid if you have not trusted in Christ. So repent and believe and trust in him if you have not. He says, you do not need to be afraid to marry. And not yet. You don't need to be afraid. And then he says, 
Mary. He reasserts her name. When God comes to us, He calls us by name. When God speaks to us, He speaks to you. He speaks to me. He's legitimately talking to you. Not somebody else, not some ethereal, distant thing. He's talking to you. So this angel says, Mary, again, here. He says, and do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He says, he says her name again to reassure her, I really am talking to you. This isn't an apparition. This isn't some distant thing. Mary, I know who you are. Just for a moment, can we revel in the fact that God knows who you are? <laughs> that He actually knows your name and cares about you, and He knows who you are. It's not, it's, He's not curious. He doesn't have to look you up. He knows your name, where you are, what you're doing. He knows you. Isn't that great? That you're not just a number. You've got a name, and he knows it. So great is his knowledge of your name that in the, in the last book of the Bible, it tells us that at the end times, for those who have uh, withstood and gotten through and, and worshipped the Lord and remained faithful, for those of us who stand before the Lord as his own, he's going to tell us a name, and he and I will know it, you and he will know it, and you'll, it will make sense. You'll be like, that's my name! All this time I've been going by this other one, but that's my name! And you're going to know it's going to make perfect sense. So, so intimate and personal is his knowledge of who you are that he knows you by name even more than you know your own. And he loves you. He shows up to ordinary people in ordinary spaces and ordinary time. So he reasserts her name. God comes to you. He comes to you. Not to someone else, but to you. You have found favor with God. And then we see the, the statement here, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of God, the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Remember, Jacob is Israel. It's just before struggling with God. Israel means one who struggles with God. Jacob means liar. So God changes Jacob's name halfway through his life to Israel struggles with God. So Jacob is Israel. It's the same name here. Jacob, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So first, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. That's the prophecy that's going on here. Gabriel is saying, the Messiah has come, the one we've been waiting for, the one that all of creation has been waiting for, has come, and he is here to crush the head of the snake. Genesis 3, 15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. If you don't have that memorized, it ought to be. It ought to be on the forefront of your mind whenever you read passages of Scripture. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah that is clearly made. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Then, born of a virgin, in Isaiah uh, 7, verse 14, it says that he will be born of a virgin. So we have this prophecy. You have these two prophecies met. And then you have the king who will 
who the government will be on his shoulders in Isaiah chapter 9, and in David's, the prophecy given to David in, in 2 Samuel, that there will be a king who sits on the throne of David forever. And his kingdom will know no end. This is the guy. So Gabriel, having gone through the entire Old Testament, if you are a Jewish person, you've heard the stories your whole life of the Old Testament, like Mary, and Gabriel comes and goes, hey, you're going to give birth to the guy, to the one we've been waiting for. As you read the Old Testament, by the way, what, you should, ha- what should happen in your head is you should go, is this the guy? No. Is this the guy? No. Is this the guy? No. It happens over and over. Noah, he's named Rest because his parents think, surely he will give us rest from our sin. No, he's not the guy. He ends up making in a field drunk, right? David, this the king? Is this the king that's going to restore our, our hearts? He's a man after God. He's a man after God's own heart. No. Second Samuel chapter 9, he ruins that. The judges, you're like, maybe this judge. No, maybe this judge. No, maybe this judge. He's worse. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And then you get to the prophets, and you're going, maybe God will send a prophet who will redeem us. And as you read the prophets, you're going, not the guy, not the guy, not the guy, not the guy. Back in Exodus, you were like, maybe Moses is the guy. Not the guy. Over and over and over, not the guy. Double time, not the guy. Then you get to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and it's evident that Moses is not the guy. Maybe Joshua. And what's it say at the end of Joshua? He failed to drive out all of the Canaanites from the land. He made peace with people he wasn't supposed to. He failed to do what he was supposed to do. And there was still wickedness in the land. So Joshua, great leader, great great soldier of Israel, not the guy. So all through the Old Testament, you're going, not the guy. And Gabriel shows up and goes, hey Mary, you're going to have the guy. You're going to have the guy, obscure Mary in a little town in the middle of nowhere that no one likes, cooking or cleaning in your own house, minding your own business, just going about your daily life, excited to be married in another year or so. You're going to have the guy. Woohoo! I can just imagine my daughter, 11 years old, turning and going, up. No. What? I can't. Mommy! Daddy! I'm going to have the guy? You just imagine it, right? It's weird. His name, Gabriel says, will be Jesus. The Lord saves. So we've got these paintings. Um, this one is the name that we're studying here. This is it. I'm going to pull it up so people online can see it. So you go. This, is, this is the name Jesus in Hebrew. Right? So Jesus in Hebrew right here is two words that form a cognate word. The first word is that apostrophe on the end. You read it right to left by the way. The first word is that apostrophe down there on the end. It's the Hebrew shortening of the word Yahweh. So whenever you see that, uh, that word followed, that letter followed by three uh, consonants, which is what these other letters are. I know, it doesn't matter. If you're not following me, just wait a minute. You'll catch up. So if you, whenever you see that, that apostrophe followed by three consonants, usually that's the shortened version of the word Yahweh. 
or Jehovah. Right? So you've got Yahweh, and then you've got these three letters, which is S-H-U-A-H, right? So Shua is these next three letters, right? The word Shua means saved or salvation. And when you put Yahweh at the beginning, it means the Lord saves. Yeshua. Now, this is a common name. And I'm going to leave this here. Hopefully, it won't knock anything over and I won't break anything. Um, so, it's a common name at that time. Uh, you've heard it multiple times. You've heard this name multiple times. Isaiah, uh, Joshua, Hosea, they're all cognates of this same word. They're not the exact same, but they're cognates. You, would also, you should also know that the name Jesus was a very common name in the first century. There's a lot of Jesuses running around. It's kind of like the name John nowadays. My parents named me John, and I have never been in a city where I have not met at least seven of me. John is everywhere. Right? So Jesus, this name, is a very common name. Now, um, Mary is told that his name is going to be Jesus, the Lord saves. And then, he's gonna, then he says more. He's going to be called Great, the Son of the Most High. He's a promised king, the eternal promised king from David. And Mary's response here seems an awful lot like Zacharias. She turns and she says to him in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, think back on what you remember about Zacharias' response. Remember Zechariah, his response, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife has been rest in years. Right? Zechariah, a smart man, does not tell us how old his wife is. Never do that. Just for all you men out there, don't tell people how old your wife is. Just say, she's beautiful. Wonderful. Younger than any... She's beautiful. Just don't even answer it. Zechariah, wise, says... I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And so, what is the difference between these two responses? Gabriel gives us some hint in that he turns to Zechariah and tells Zechariah, because you've doubted. So, so of the bat, we know that Mary's response doesn't seem to have the same doubt. right? But let's look at it at the surface level. Let's first look at the words between Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Note the emphasis. How shall I know this? In other words, prove it to me. How shall I know this? He's concerned with himself and his hands, which makes sense because he's a priest who does righteousness by his own hands. So he's concerned with himself and his hands and getting things done by his own works. So how, can, how, can, how shall I know this? He's concerned with his religious response of what must I do to make this happen? How shall I know this? This is common among men who have been faithful to serve in duty. We tend to think that we accomplish something, that we do something, when in reality, we are utterly dependent on God to do something, on God to move. So, we tend to think that we do something, and, and it's not about us, it's not about our hands. Indeed, when God says, I'm going to do something, it's about what he is going to do. Second, Mary's response is, 
How can this be, since I am a virgin? Mary is concerned with the miracle. Did you notice it's not, how can I accomplish this? Or how am I going to go about doing this? It's, how can this be, since I'm a virgin? I'm inadequate to do this. I have not had the experience to do this. Lord, how can you accomplish this? How can this miracle be? So right off the bat, in their words, we see Zechariah has a concern for his own work in his own hands, and how, how can I be sure of this? And me, how can I know this? Mary, on the other hand, responds, how can this be? How can this miracle happen? I think the application here is that the miracles of God are not dependent on the hands of man. The work of God is not dependent on the hands of man. He delights in working in and through us, but he is not dependent on us. He delights in working in and through us, but is not dependent on us. Second, we have circumstance here. Zechariah is a religious leader in the key religious town of Jerusalem, in the temple, in the holy part of the temple. He is in a place that is holy and venerated. Mary is in the middle of nowhere in a small town so inconsequential that it doesn't even tell you if she's inside or outside in the story. We assume that she's in a house. She might have been walking in the woods. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. We just know that she's in a normal, ordinary, everyday place, so ordinary that they didn't even have to tell us that she's inside, outside, or doing anything. She's just there. In a small, inconsequential town that no one likes to be in. This is the kind of town, by the way, Nazareth is the kind of town that if you read first century sources, everybody wanted to move away from. You know? The kind of town people would write, when I get my, when I make my first, you know what I'm talking about? When I make my first million, I'm moving out to such and such I'm moving up to Capernaum. You know, they would move away. When I get my first boat, we're going to move across the, the Sea of Galilee. We're going to move over there to those big houses. That's how people wrote about first century uh, Galilee. It's really interesting to read some of them because they're just... Nazareth was just not a place people wanted to live. She's there. She's in this ordinary place Zechariah is in the exalted temple. Another difference is that Zechariah is a religious leader who is seeking the Lord by duty. Mary is an ordinary young girl who doesn't seem to be seeking anything. Isn't it great to know that God will show up to both of us? God will show up to the religious man who is seeking the Lord with all his heart. And he will show up to the ordinary person who doesn't expect it. He is great and kind in both. Zechariah finds miracle of God in his duty. And Mary finds miracle of God in her ordinary daily life. Zechariah, faithfully executing the office of priest for years, finds a miracle from God. Mary, being an ordinary little teenage girl, finds the miracle of God. But I think there's two more differences. One is age. Zechariah is old and his wife is old as well. 
Mary is young. Both should not be able to have children. Mary is a virgin, should not be having a child. And Elizabeth is barren, and past the age, that, that phrase barren there indicates that she's past the age of childbearing. Shouldn't be able to have it. Shouldn't be able to have a child. So there's a big age gap there. Mary, the cousin of Elizabeth, is about to have a kid, and Elizabeth is having a kid. Elizabeth is older. Mary is a teenager. The biggest difference, though, between these two prophecies is the subject matter. One heralds the King of Kings, the King of all glory, the Messiah who would save the world, the King who will sit on the throne for a thousand years, who will sit on the throne forever, who will reign as Lord over all things. One of these prophecies proclaims the king who is going to conquer and redeem. The other proclaims the grace of God through a voice crying in the wilderness that is not the king, but points to the king. That's the biggest difference in these prophecies. It's part of the reason that Zechariah is told to be silent and Mary is given this favored response. Because the subject matter that he is talking about is different. Indeed, when we talk about the King Jesus, we are talking about the one who saves the soul. When we talk about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, by the way, we didn't make it in the book. He's not a Baptist. He's a Baptizer. That's what it means. It doesn't mean, like, Southern Baptist did not make it into the book. John is not part of you. Um, this one is. You get it. So, He's the baptizer. When we talk about the baptizer, he points to Jesus. He's a pointer. He points at Jesus Christ. And the difference here is the magnitude of these prophecies. One prophecy is of the Messiah. The other one is of pointing to him. Pointing to the Messiah. And then we have a, a, her response. Her response to the angel. So there are some differences. And then her response to the angel and then the angel responds, Gabriel responds there in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I love that phrase. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. It will overwhelm, overshadow you. You will be lost in the glory that is Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying to her. You, your individual, so valuable, Mary, we love you so much. God has given you such favor and grace, but that favor and grace is so great and so powerful that for history, when anybody really considers who Mary is, it's going to be overshadowed by the greatness of who Jesus is. By the greatness of the King of kings, the Lord of glory. And we see that He is King. Anytime we look at this, anytime we hear her story, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's the first prophecy he's referencing, the Son of God. God will send his Son. Uh, and then verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age. So Mary, here's your proof. Mary, here's your proof. Elizabeth in her old age is going to have a son has also conceived a son, and, 
And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. So he looks at her and he goes, you're too young, she's too old, and God's going to do it. God's going to do it. Nothing's impossible with God. Now, just an application point for us. Is there anything in your life that you're thinking that God can't do? Because these are two pretty big miracles. I mean, my dad was an obstetrics and gynecology doctor. I knew more than I should have when I was little about reproductive cycles and about reproduction in women. I knew more than I should have. You know, it's my dad's career. My dad loved me. He was around me all the time. I was in the hospital with him. I was in and out meeting patients with him. And we heard, you know, we heard dinner table talk about his various patients. So I knew a lot about these things. And uncomfortably so, uh, I got approved to skip sex education in my school, though my parents made me take it anyway. I got approved, I got approved to take it just by the name of my dad. Like, I walked in, I was like, this is my dad. They were like, you don't need this. <laughs> and, but I said, my mom did. So we, we, I, ha- I had all this understanding and and I gotta tell you, there's an age at which a woman shouldn't be able to conceive anymore. And there's an age before which a woman isn't to conceive. And without the actual biological act, you can't conceive. Except here. Evidently. Except here. God can do anything. God can do anything. This is biologically impossible. And nothing is impossible with God. She says nothing will be impossible with God. In verse 38, Mary said, Behold, and I love this response, and we're going to end thinking about this response today. Behold, I am the bondservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here, Mary responds to God the way that we ought to. Behold, I am your slave, Lord. That's what she says. Bondservant, Greek word slave, servant there in ESV. We soften the word because slave is such a harsh word in our culture. That's what it means. It means slave. I'm your slave. You do with me what you want, Lord. I'm your slave. Do what you want. Let it be so. Amen, is what she said. Let it be according to your word. Amen. So we respond to God one of two ways. Either we doubt or made silent for a time until he opens our mouth again. Or we say, I'm yours Let it be done according to your word, Lord. I believe that Christians respond best with the second one. I am your servant. Let it be done. Can we say that this morning as we face a a time period in our culture where we are about to see a shift one way or another in power? Can we say 
that we trust the Lord, let it be done as your word says. Will we say it? We must say it. Let it be done as your word says. He's come to ordinary people. That's who we are. We're ordinary people. And he has said, I am king. By the way, in a theocracy, there are no political parties. There are no political parties in a theocracy. We serve a king who is greater than all of us. Who is greater than all our political parties and affiliations. And that king will have his way. He will. You want to know how to be secure with this election coming up? We, you can't lose anything because he owns everything and he gave you what you have. He is king. He is Lord. And he does not give that power away. It's his. So whatever happens, we can trust in his hand. There are no political parties in a theocracy. We are either his or we're not. And if we are his, we have nothing to fear. The king has been announced, and we must respond. Lord, I'm your servant. Let it be so according to your word.